0: Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is reminding businesses of the Curb to Compost program, which allows businesses, restaurants to have food waste collection. And this is an important next step in your business's or restaurants recycling program. Welcome to episode number 162 of the Jackson Hole Connection. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, and they are reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. Also think about when you go shopping to bring reusable bags. Reusable bags are fabulous for the environment and help you save money. Also sponsoring this episode is the Deli at Jackson Hole Marketplace. We guarantee to bring yum to your belly. Check us out for breakfast or lunch and we make the food right there fresh every day. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephen Clark Abrams, the creator and host of this podcast. Thank you everybody who is tuning in for the first time. Welcome, and I'm sure you will enjoy the content today. And welcome back all of you veteran listeners of the podcast. Remember everybody, the best way for others to find and enjoy this podcast is to share it with people on social media and give us a rating and review. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories and I'm interviewing people with stories which are fascinating, which we can all learn and grow from. Today's guest is Danielle Shapiro, a social justice warrior who's traveled the globe to share with the world the social justice issues of the day. The life of a freelance writer did not allow for Danielle to continue her work of research and writing about the struggles people have each day around the globe. Danielle has a genuine spirit to help the world be a better place. And Danielle has made monumental contributions to society through writing. Now as a mom, Danielle has focused her energies to other forms of writing. The passion has not been extinguished within Danielle. And as you will hear on this episode, Danielle has a deep desire to continue learning and contributing to her community and the greater world. Danielle, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's uh, wonderful to meet you and albeit virtually, it's still wonderful to meet you.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, you are now a local here in Jackson Hole, but we all have a little story to share as far as how we became locals living here. Let's start off with uh, hearing from you. Where did you grow up and how did you end up landing here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming?
1: Um, so it is a bit of an unexpected tale, especially for the people that, who knew me when I was youngest and uh, that community that I'm from. I grew up in Chicago in the South side in Hyde, a neighborhood, neighborhood called Hyde Park. My dad is a professor at the University of Chicago and the university is right there. And so, you know, very urban kid. I was living in the middle of the city, but fortunately I was lucky enough to have parents who decided that skiing would make a great family vacation. Um, my grandparents skied and loved it. My parents learned as adults. And so they started taking us skiing when I was very young. I think the first time I was on skis, I was about two years old and we would go every spring. And I fell in love with it in a way that I loved few other things. Um, I was a gymnast as a kid and I rode horses and I loved those too, but I loved skiing in a sort of an unusual way. Um, And I remember telling my mother leaving one vacation, we used to go to Taos, New Mexico every spring, um, that one day I was going to grow up and get paid to ski. Because I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. (laughs) And uh, fast forward to being a young 20-something. I had graduated college and moved to San Francisco and was working there, um, but was in a job I didn't love. And I had a friend who was going to come to Jackson for the winter. And she said, you should come. And I'd never skied in Jackson before, but I'd known about it and always... Wanted to experience it and I thought about it. I was like, let me think about this and I'll get back to you. You know, really, it took me about two seconds. I knew in my heart that I was going to go and I did. So I quit my job and I moved out to Jackson and I tried out for the ski school and I got hired and that was that. And I was supposed to be here for one season and I knew in about five minutes that I was never really leaving. And I've been here 21 years now. There have been comings and goings in those 21 years, but I could never quit this place. (laughs) And eventually it became the right place to raise my daughter and live my adult life and the rest of my life. And here we are.
0: Well, welcome. I mean, we're about on the same timeline. I'm the, (laughs) the class of 99.
1: Oh, yeah. So I moved out here actually... I guess I moved out here, was it December of 99, I think? Yeah. I think it was December of 99 that I moved. It might've been, I think so. Yeah. It was right before. Yeah. Cause we were right before the 2000 and the,
0: the Y2K. The,
1: yeah. The crazy yeah. celebration, you know, preparation for what was supposed to be some kind of insane New Year's. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so now you've been here for 21 years, you said yeah. kind of off and on. So you've,
1: so early on, to, yeah. So early on, I was here for a couple of years, and then I left to go get a master's degree. I did a master's in international comparative law with a focus on human rights law in London, um, and I did that. That was a year-long program, and then I came back, and I was here for another two years, and then I left again to go get my another master's degree at uh, the School of Journalism at Columbia University, and. Once I got that degree, when I graduated, I got a job as an education reporter in a small newspaper in New Jersey. So I stayed living in New York and I would you know, just come back to Jackson on my vacations. But after a couple of years as an education reporter, I decided to start freelancing and then I started spending more time here again, but I still kind of split my time between here and New York. And I did that for many years, maybe about eight years or so. And I think it was maybe in 2015 again, that I finally decided I should make this my full-time permanent home again. Um, I I wanted to have a child and I was trying to figure out where I should raise her. And Jackson started feeling like a lot better choice than New York city. Although my mom thought really hard to get me to come back to Chicago too. But I think living full-time in a city just didn't feel like it would work for me anymore.
0: I'm with you on that one.
1: So I always, I always had a place here and, you know, spent lots and lots of time here, but then, um, you know, was full-time again Um, So, yeah, since about 2015.
0: Awesome. Now, a lot of time in between that when you moved out here in 99 to what happened in 2015. You got two advanced degrees, you're a journalist, but you've done a lot of very interesting journalism in that time period. And I'm curious to learn and hear from you what that journey has been like.
1: Yeah, I, um, I think like a lot of, you know, young people in my 20s, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I've also, I've always had a bit of a sort of social justice warrior in me. I come by it naturally. It's in my family too. And I decided after a little bit after college that I, I landed on this idea that I should maybe become a human rights attorney, that I was really interested in human rights and international law, and that maybe that's what I should do. Um, which is why I went off to London to get my first degree. And um, it was a wonderful program and I learned a ton. But one of the things I learned is that I did not, in fact, want to be a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, international law is fascinating, but it can also be incredibly difficult to enforce. And I was, I guess, worried that I would spend my career, my life, sort of banging my head against a wall, fighting the, you know, quote unquote, good fight. And maybe... Losing a lot for sort of arbitrary reasons, and I felt like, for me personally, that was going to be a battle I wasn't quite willing to wage. I had a, a summer internship one year at a human rights law firm in Atlanta. Fascinating experience, and those lawyers, bless them, I've never seen anyone work harder. But it felt a little bit thankless, and I, I guess it's you know we all have our own fallibilities, but I just felt like maybe that wasn't something that I could excel at. And so, fortunately, in one of my classes, we. We're discussing a reading one evening. It was a class on women's human rights, which was my main focus. And uh, the professor made a comment about being a feminist journalist instead of a feminist lawyer. And it was the journalist part and the sort of activist part that I thought, well, that's interesting. Like by the fortune of my birth, being an American citizen and having freedom of speech, I could have the opportunity to write about all the kinds of things that I find troubling and important and that Think people should, you know, be aware of and be educated about. Uh, at the same time, no one could sort of stop me from doing those things, you know, legally. And that resonated. I had done actually had been in the journalism program in my high school and had loved writing. Had done some writing for the newspapers at university and had loved it. But I don't know what for whatever reason just sort of never thought about that as a career until that moment. And. I came back from that program and came back to Jackson after being in London for a year and started freelancing for the newspapers out here. And I loved it. Like I loved it in a way that I had never, I felt sort of passionate about it in a way I'd never felt for anything professionally. Um, I never got bored. I It never felt stagnant or you know overly consistent. And it didn't really matter so much what I was writing about. And so I started doing that really quite frequently. Um, it was one of the main things I did and that's what led me to apply to, and then go to Columbia for the, to their journalism school. Well,
0: I'm I'm glad that you found your, your jam.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess I, I realized I maybe haven't answered fully the question, but then the focus I, so I became an education reporter. That was my first job, which was incredible training. It's sort of, you know, one of those beats, uh, maybe like the, you know, police beat or something where you, Learn so much and news are pounding the pavement, building sources and, you know, everything from covering school board meetings to interviewing second graders about, you know, their amazing teacher. And I loved it. I love talking to kids. I love digging into some of the sort of maybe wonkier stuff around school funding. I love meeting all the characters, you know, and when you're on a beat where you have a neighborhood or community that you get to know and you build those relationships, it's quite special and learning to write on deadline and quickly, and which, I, gosh, I probably can't do quite as well as I used to be able to do, but uh, it was all pretty incredible. I also am a very passionate traveler and very curious about the world and um, love to engage with the world. And I guess I felt a little antsy and I wanted to get out there. So I just decided I would. <laughs> so I started traveling around the world, and that's when I was able to choose my focus as a freelancer. And the focus I chose was around human rights and women's rights and children's lives and ended up traveling to some pretty fascinating parts of the world.
0: Would you, I'm very interested to know some of the places that you traveled to, but not just the travel, what are some of the stories you wrote about Yeah, that, that helped make a difference?
1: Yeah. Um, So my first big international trip by myself was to India, and I'd never been to India before. Um, And I went there to write about a woman who is a nurse midwife and was at the time at UCSF. I haven't followed her a ton since then, so I'm assuming she's still there, but would have to look. She had developed this really um, interesting device. It was a sort of neoprene wrap that she would train nurses across India and midwives across India to use to put on patients after giving birth. And by wrapping it quite tightly, I think they started at the ankles and went up the body, but don't quote me on that because I can't remember the exact method of wrapping it. They would help stop postpartum hemorrhage, which is and has been among the leading causes of death, maternal mortality around the world for women around the world. And it was such a sort of low tech, easy to use, relatively inexpensive, not, you know, not nothing, but compared to some other treatments. Um, And it was really fascinating. And she was traveling around India, training nurses and midwives how to use this. And um, that felt very sort of right up my alley. And I went and uh, spent about two weeks following her and two weeks traveling around the country. And I, from that point, I was like, well, I'm not stopping now. Uh, I think one of my next big trips was probably to Eastern Congo, the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. And this is a country that has been for, I guess we could realistically say most of modern history, rife with conflict and abuse, but in most modern times really full of a lot of conflict and violence since uh, after the Rwandan genocide, when a lot of the Hutu rebels fleeing Rwanda crossed over the border into Eastern Congo. And I went there to follow a story about two physicians from the University of Chicago who were, um, they were urologists performing these complicated surgeries on women that had severe fistulas, um, which is sort of, you know, um, leakage that, you know, they leak urine and sometimes feces. It's pretty awful. And they often suffer a lot of, they get ostracized from their communities. And sometimes this is because they, often it's because Um, they're having children when they're so young and their bodies just aren't quite ready to handle it, right? And they're really, you know, they get married very young and have babies very young. And um, sometimes it's from sexual violence, which is rampant in that um, country. And as a result of a lot of the conflict, it's really been one of the tactics of war there. And I went to follow these uh, physicians who were doing this surgery and was able to interview um, a physician at a hospital in um, a city called Bukavu in Eastern Congo and South Kivu named Dennis Mukwege, who has, I think a few times been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, a really interesting guy. And I was very quickly drawn into that country and its story, um, a long and fascinating history there. Um and it's an exceptionally beautiful place physically. And the people are incredibly friendly. And it's very sad too, what's happened and happening there. So I ended up going back several times and doing stories about public health and sexual violence and um, children's lives there. I went several times into Eastern Congo, both North and South Kivu. And I was in Kinshasa a couple of times, which is the capital, which is like on the totally other side of the country. And Congo is one of the largest nations in all of Africa. So it's a very big place. Um, And from there, um, I went to Indonesia, I've been to Liberia, I've been to Libya, I have been at El Salvador, I've been to a lot of parts of the world. And I've written stories about, you know, inmates in El Salvador who are involved in a literacy and writing program as a way to kind of, it becomes therapeutic. I mean, I don't think the main impulse necessary is therapy, but it becomes therapeutic to sort of learn to write their stories I, um, in Indonesia, wrote about um, a matriarch, one of the last matriarchal societies in the world. Let's see, what else have I done in Libya? This was not long after Gaddafi was captured and killed. And we were in that country and went to his hometown and wrote a story about children at a local school there. And the the way the divided loyalties, those who were Gaddafi supporters and those who weren't sort of played out on the playground basically. Mm. So some really incredible things. I went to Nepal and wrote about these three sisters who own a trekking company, one of the few women in the country to do so, and also train young women from parts of our Western Nepal, which were much more you know deeply impoverished and rural and train them to be guides, which is a very good living um, in that country. And there are very few women guides. So always very you know socially focused often about women. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was fascinating and incredible to have an opportunity to see these places and meet so many people. Um, And after a while, I did decide to start my sort of return my focus back to the US um, for a variety of reasons, but um, ended up writing similar kinds of stories really here. I mean, these issues are not um, exclusive to international waters. (laughs) We have many, if not all of them here. And so I did
0: that. I'm speechless. Um... (laughs) For the what what you're doing, I'm curious to know when you write these s- stories, what what are you learning from the people you're speaking to, and how do you carry that forward in your writing? That's
1: funny. I'm, that's a, a sort of an emotional question you've asked me. Um, I, I'll I'll correct and then explain a little bit, which is I don't unfortunately write these kinds of stories as much anymore. My work has shifted a little bit, but I think um, I've learned a lot of bravery and vulnerability. It is pretty incredible, the kinds of things people were willing to talk to me about and share with me. And uh, that was a real gift. And I think as a journalist, you get to be undercover in a way, or there's safety in it in a way. I mean, I get to be, I like to say that it's a polite excuse to be really nosy. Hmm. Uh, And it is. Um, but you you know I'm asking people, and often in these stories i've and in much of what I've written, I've asked people to talk to me about some of the most powerful, sometimes incredibly painful things that have ever happened to them. They trusted me with that, and that's very humbling. I would come home from a lot of my trips and walk into my apartment in New York or walk into my home in Jackson and think, "Wow, mm. wow, how lucky am I And that's a nice way to live, I think. <laughs> Uh, Just to be aware of my privilege, of my good fortune, of the safety and security I get to experience every day, you know, that's a, so I, I, yeah, I was, and I was really in awe of so many of the people and many of women who I interviewed around the world and their lives are not very easy. Um, And I don't think I probably ever interviewed anyone who was complaining. I think they were just telling me what they were experiencing and how they were dealing with it and Mm -hmm. very moving. Uh, So in my writing, um, I guess I try to, I try to just convey that in as sort of straightforward, you know, um, clear and compelling way as I can. And it's not to say that writing is easy. I mean, some stories flow, some stories you just are pulling your hair out and you Mm. can never quite tell. Um, um, although I guess there are times when you're interviewing someone and they say something and you say, oh my gosh, well, that that's the quote I'm using, or that's how I'm going to start my story. You know, that, that, that story you just told me, that's, what's going to open this up. So sometimes that does happen, but it's really just about bringing the stories onto the page. And I guess in an unvarnished way, cause they speak for themselves. Um, they're powerful for themselves and they don't need to add much. I just need to tell them. And I guess you know, that's part of what I search for are, you know, you don't read that much about Eastern Congo in the news, do you? When was the last time you saw a story about the Eastern Congo in the news? So part of it is choosing what to write about and going, choosing where to go and what stories feel interesting to me. And stories often feel interesting to me because they're not often told. Mm-hmm.
0: Because the is not often told, what was your process to research something to find to write about?
1: yeah one story sort of leads to another often. So um, I have a family friend who had another friend who knew about these doctors who wanted to go to Congo to do these surgeries. That was the first story in Congo. And she was felt it was so important. She was going to pay for their trip. And I happened to be on a breast cancer awareness walk with her and she was telling me about it. And I said, "Oh my gosh, I want to go with them. And she said, great. <laughs> And then once I got to Congo and did that story, and I had this incredible translator there and fixer who would kind of arrange things for me, you know, find drivers and set up interviews for me. And once I got there and was talking to him and talking to the interviewees and getting to know the country and getting to know people and, you know, you, you, you start learning about other stories. And I came home and started planning my next trip to cover the next stories. And then, you know, the more you dig in and meet people from around the world and, that's kind of the you know the process. Sometimes there's news events. Um, and I had a colleague who's a photographer who wanted to go to Libya. So we did that trip together and we found that story of the kids on the playground while we were there. We were actually reporting another story that we never ended up being able to write because it was sort of a story about a conflict between two towns. Uh, one town effectively had sort of pushed the, the locals out of the other town nearby. They were neighboring towns, and, you know, divided loyalties, right? From and we kept trying to sort of figure out what was happening and why that had happened. And we were hearing that the one, you know, the residents of the one town were going to be able to move back, and but then they didn't. And we literally it was so complicated and convoluted and changing all the time. We couldn't really piece it together. Um, and we ended up not really being able to write that story. So, I mean, it's it is sort of interesting what happens when you get there. But usually, when you get to a place, and I would try and have a story that I would pitch ahead of time and have an assignment for, and then when I would get there, maybe find some others and pitch them while I was there.
0: And I'm deeply moved by your passion to share these stories. And I I like what you you said. It's it's a real privilege to be able to speak to these folks and share their their life experiences, which we here in America, for the most part, don't really have an idea what's going on in the rest of the world. But also sometimes how you said it's here in the US and we just don't know about it because it's not reported on. Right. It's, it's the stuff that gets people riled up.
1: Right. One of the stories I wrote here that had I think resonated so much with a lot of people but also was one of my favorite stories was a piece that I did oh gosh it was probably you know seven or so years ago now it was a long time ago but about the struggle that low-income families have to achieve some kind of work-life balance and of mm. course I focus mostly on parents and mothers um and uh it's it's impossible basically um the nature of work and scheduling especially if you're working sort of in, you know, low, low paying jobs, r- fast food restaurants and things like that. And the headline of the story was, uh, you know, these moms are one sick kid away from losing their job or one sick kid away from disaster or something like that, which is true. Like if you, your child is sick and you know, you have to stay home and you can't go in for your shift and there's no one to cover you and your boss just fires you. And then what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and that, that was a really fascinating to report as well. And that's, you know, again, I mean, I think we've we've started actually talking about work-life balance in this country in an interesting and new way because of the pandemic mm-hmm. and because work suddenly came home with all of us and the uh, lines between our professional lives and our private lives sometimes went away, and so we've started talking about that in a different way. But um, I think it's again when you look at you know families. Particularly at the lower economic end of the spectrum, and then, you know, women again and communities of color and people who just don't get as much attention. You know, it's had, there was a professor I interviewed for that story who said to me, she said, you know, when someone's going on a job interview and there's in these, in in a position like this where they've had sort of frequent disruptions in their professional life and they're looking at the resume, she says, you know, does the hiring manager ever ask, you know, they usually ask, well, why are there these gaps in your resume? They don't ask, oh, were you at home being a really good parent? Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, what a fascinating way to think about these things differently. So that was, that was, and that, that was a story I reported mostly in New York.
0: And if somebody does have a break in their resume and it's because they were there to be a good parent, it's looked at as a negative versus a positive.
1: Right. Right. We have some, I mean, it's the priorities in our society are often about profit mm-hmm. and not as much about people. The truth is if you prioritize people, you probably make more profit.
0: Right. Yeah. We just received our certification for great place to work at the liquor store marketplace. Oh, that's awesome. That's we we're awesome. we're quite, quite thrilled about it. And that's coming from the staff. They vote on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's and great.
0: You're right. You take care of your people first, and then profits will, will naturally come.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of research on that too. I mean, I'm not making it up. <laughs>
0: oh, I don't <laughs> doubt it. I don't doubt it. Danielle, I want to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back, right back to continue this very fascinating, engaging conversation. Thank you. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is reminding you to bring reusable bags whenever you go shopping for groceries or other stores around town. Reusable bags are great for the environment because... They are one-time production. Remember to wash those reusable bags so you can keep the germs off of whatever you purchase, especially your groceries. We've already helped remove millions of single-use plastic bags from the waste stream, and now we can do even more by composting food. That's right. The Trash Transfer Station Facilities offers food waste composting in addition to yard waste composting. Just give them a call at 307-733-767 for up-to-date hours of operation and find out how you can begin composting. Additional support for this episode comes from the vault of Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole's only climate-controlled wine storage facility and offering temperature-controlled storage for businesses. They're happy to help you anytime and answer all of your questions. Remember, collect today to indulge tomorrow. Give them a call, 307-248-6392. Danielle, welcome back you were sharing some of the stories that you've written as you traveled around the world. And you you also mentioned that you are not writing about human rights. Um, the social, would would you call that social justice? Yeah. Yeah. So you've transitioned into a new aspect of a new dimension of journalism, of writing, um, I don't want to put journalism out there because it might not necessarily be journalism, um, but it's writing. You're still writing. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. I've had to make some changes. I Being a journalist and being a reporter is you know, one of the best things I've ever done. And I'm absolutely still passionate about it and love it and, and I'm still an avid news junkie and all those things. Um, but being a freelance writer is a hard gig and it's frankly, and bluntly hard to make a living doing it. And I I also made some really concerted choices about, you know, how I wanted to live and where I wanted to live. And, you know, I could have made other choices that maybe made that gig easier, but I wanted to be out here and I wanted to have time for an outdoorsy life and all of those things. So I started and wanting to become a parent. And I started thinking about, well, I, you know, probably need something a little bit more remunerative. (laughs) So, but I have this skill set, And so what should I do? So I've transitioned into doing all kinds of different writing and editing too. I edit other freelance writers for a content marketing company in New York. And I have a local client writing newsletters and doing emails and website copy. And um, I work with someone uh, in other parts of the country, helping her with sort of op-eds and communications materials and things like that. Um, and in that gig, there's a lot of, you know, do-gooder clients that's sort of right up my alley around, you know, women's rights and environmental justice and things like that. So it, it's still quite fulfilling and stretching my, um, my writing muscles in the same ways. But, um, you know, these are things that are a little bit more consistent, a little bit more reliable. And um, I haven't given up on being a journalist on occasion. I get to write a story and I have like probably a list of at least five, if not 10 story ideas that I could pursue. And I'm hoping that uh, my daughter just started kindergarten this year. So uh, everyone, I know everyone tells me I'm supposed to have more time. I haven't really seen that happen yet. Um, But I'm hoping that it might and that it might lead to a little bit more bandwidth to do some more journalistic writing and work again. But I've taken all those skill sets of sort of interviewing and uh, taking complex ideas and writing them clearly and conveying them succinctly in written form. And of course, having, you know, now been an editor for about seven years, you know, I can help clients with a lot of different things. So I stay busy. I even have written done some speech writing, which has been really fun. I've done, you know, written eulogies and best man speeches and mother and father of the bride speeches and things like that. I mean, it's been those kinds of things are really fun. And
0: so those really good wedding toasts, they're paying somebody to most likely write.
1: Not always, not always. Some people <laughs> do that on their own and they're, you know, I've been to, I've definitely been to weddings where I've had friends who have on their very own written some incredible toasts. but some people need a little help. And, you know, they, they, in that process, they, you know, give me all the information about the person they're toasting and, you know, it's still their stories and stuff, but writing is hard and it's a skill that not everybody has. So it's something that I can pitch in with.
0: I'm glad that there's people like you out there to help people like me who <laughs> writing is very hard to help with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, it's a funny thing because I don't always find it easy either, but I always find it really fulfilling. You know, you know, when I'm done with a piece, whatever it is, white papers, case studies, op-eds, whatever I'm writing, it's always really fun to reread it, reread it out loud and say, oh yeah, that works. That makes sense. I like that. That's powerful. Um, I don't
0: send it off to anyone until I can say that. For somebody like yourself, you just said that you're a news junkie. You You like information. You yeah. like to read information. For somebody like me that doesn't want to just read the standard top of the scroll type of information, but stories that make a difference, mm. stories that could get me thinking. Mm. What would you recommend to myself and others listening where to go to acquire news that's not, I guess, glamorized or it's, you know, it's basically put out there just to sell ads, but it's, it's created to get people to think. And
1: So there's a distinction between news and noise <laughs> and um, it's, it is important to be able to discern between the two. Um, If you're watching the news on the TV, I think the only TV news that's really worth watching is PBS NewsHour. And I think maybe a lot of people would think that's sort of boring. But in that context, I think boring is good and it's incredibly informative. Um, You know, people talk. Do you? Yeah, it's Gwen Ifill, the late Gwen Ifill, who died a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. is one of my idols. And that show has some incredibly impressive journalists on it. People talk about objectivity and I've always thought that objectivity in the news is a little bit tricky because as a concept, because when I'm the reporter on a story, first of all, I choose what story to write about. So I've got some kind of bias there because certain things will interest me in ways that others won't. I choose who to interview. I choose what quotes to use. I choose what data points to include. I choose after all those interviews and after all the reporting, what I think the story is. So, rather than objectivity, I think I like to talk about being fair and honestly and accurately representing all the sides of an issue. Um, and I think in reading the news, that's sort of what I'm looking at um, or looking for. So, something that feels extremely well researched, thoughtfully put together, nuanced. It's not glossing over complexities. So, I I do obviously I look at you know I. For major headlines and just to see what's happening, I, I tend to go to the Washington Post and the New York Times. I also really like the New Yorker. I mean, if you want to dig deep into things, I'm going to totally expose my what some might say is my liberal bias, but so be it. I guess these are the publications that I find quite good. Um, I really like The Atlantic. I like, um, you know, I used to write fairly frequently for the Christian Science Monitor. And they I remember one of the editors there who was always encouraging me to look for solutions to problems. So to look at and report stories of people trying to figure out how to solve tricky, intractable, confounding problems. Mm-hmm. And I like that focus. There are so many good publications and good stories. I guess, uh, you know, one of this one of the newsletters I do, we like to include stories that we're reading and things we're looking at. And I'm, I'm all over the place. I mean, I look all over I read Rolling Stone. I'll look at um, New York Magazine. I'll look at Vogue. I'll look at Harper's Bazaar or Harper's Magazine. I'll look at uh, Boston magazine, I mean, regional magazine. I mean, there's tons of good journalism out there, actually. There are some great literary magazines, you know? So I, I think there's, there's tons of material. Um, I do stay away from, I I do try to stay away from things that are sensationalistic. There's a great series. It's a book and it's a series and it's, um, the best magazine writing, and the best travel writing, and I think they have others like maybe the best science writing or something. They collect them in a book every year. So there's, you know, for 2021, there'll be a book for 2020, and they have these celebrity editors that edit each book. Anthony Bourdain was an editor one year, you know, things like Elizabeth Gilbert. I think maybe don't quote me on that one, but you know, well-known writers and journalists will edit them, and those are wonderful if you just want to pick up a book and read a ton of incredible nonfiction. Mm. I like to bring those when I travel;
0: like they're great. Where would, would the library carry those?
1: They might. Yeah. I mean, I tend to, when I want a new one, you know, you can find them on Amazon, Uh Um, but they're great too because they include essays from, you know, everything from like Esquire magazine to the sun or something like, you know, publications you may never have heard of before. I actually wrote sort of a travel essay for a literary um, website called the smart set once. And I had found out about the smart set. Cause I had read one. It was, there was an essay from that publication in one of the books.
0: Um, and it would be called like the, give me an example the best of. Best
1: magazine writing of 2021. Oh. Or 2020. Yeah. Or the best travel
0: writing from 2020. Cool. Now question about your writing. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to read some of your articles. I'm curious if you have, a website that would link to your articles that you have published.
1: Yeah, I do. Um, it's just www.donielle-shapiro.com.
0: I've been there. I can look that up.
1: Yeah. And there's an article page, so you'll find them there.
0: And everybody listening is going to go to it. Your, your spike <laughs> of viewers on your website is going to go
1: through <laughs> Fingers crossed. <Yeah.
0: laughs> Danielle, thank you for the contribution that you're making to, to society that you have made to society. Your, your work is still out there, but just being a great person, a good mom, good human, good community person. I've learned so much talking to you today. Oh,
1: I'm so glad you're very kind to say those things. I, I hope I am a good human and a good mom. Definitely have my weaknesses, but I do try.
0: Do you put out any content on social media that people might want to follow you?
1: I should. This is an area I need to improve. Um, Again, it's really more about finding the bandwidth to do sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And I think the self-promotion stuff, sadly, always comes last.
0: I'm, I'm a parent. I get it.
1: Yeah. I would like to. I would like to even start sharing. There is a place on my website to sign up to be in touch and there I would like to start sharing, you know, just interesting things I'm reading and sort of why. Mm-hmm. And it's really like maybe it should be my 2022 resolution of what I start doing. But yeah. I mean, the best way to get in touch is through my website probably and if people have inquiries or, you know, want help with anything or just have questions or whatever, that's probably the best.
0: Writing a speech. Yeah. Yes. Somebody's going to be married and you have to give a speech or you're just yeah. giving a presentation and you need a little help. Totally. Yep. Um, yep I love I'm it. I'm good for that. <laughs> well, Danielle, thank you for your time today. This has been very special and an insightful education moment for me. Thank you.
1: Uh, very kind. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's really been yeah.
0: a- Enjoy the fall colors out there.
1: I will. You too.
0: I'm on fire. I will certainly <laughs> do that. Thank you, Danielle.
1: Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: To learn more about Danielle and her writing, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com episode number 162. Thank you, everybody who helps keep this podcast on the air. My wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, and my editor and marketing director, Michael Warren. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.